Chapter Two of No Clue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. No Clue by James Hay. Chapter Two, The Woman on the Lawn. Mr. Jefferson Hastings, unsuspecting that he was about to be confronted with the most brutal crime in all his experience, regretted having come to Sloanehurst. He disapproved of himself unreservedly. Clad in an ample, antique nightshirt, he stood at a window of the guest-room assigned to him, and gazed over the steel rims of his spectacles into the hot, rainy night. His real vision, however, made no attempt to pierce the outer darkness. His eyes were turned inward, upon himself, in derision of his behavior during the past three hours. A kindly, reticent gentleman, who looked much older than his fifty-three years, he made it his habit to listen rather than talk. His wide fame as a criminologist and consulting detective had implanted no egotism in him. He abhorred the spotlight. But tonight, Judge Wilton, by skillful use of query, suggestion, and reminder, had tempted him into talking shop. He had been lured into the role of monologist for the benefit of his host, Arthur Sloan. He had talked brilliantly, at length, in detail, holding his three hearers in spellbound and fascinated interest, while he discoursed on crimes which he had probed and criminals whom he had known. Not that he thought he had talked brilliantly. By no means. He was convinced that nine-tenths of the interest manifested in his remarks had been dictated by politeness. Old Hastings was just that sort of person. He discounted himself. He was in earnest, therefore, in his present self-denunciation. He sighed, remembering the volume of his discourse, the awful length of time in which he had monopolized the conversation. But his modesty was not his only admirable characteristic. He had also a dependable sense of humor. It came to his relief now. He thought of his host, a chuckle throttling the beginnings of a second sigh deep down in his throat. This was not the first time that Arthur Broughton Sloan had provoked a chuckle, although for him life was a house of terror, a torture chamber constructed with fiendish ingenuity. Mr. Sloan suffered from nerves. He was spending his declining years in the arduous but surprisingly successful task of being wretched, irritable, and ill at ease. The variety of his agonies was equaled only by the alacrity with which he tested every cure or remedy of which he happened to hear. He agreed enthusiastically with his expensive physicians that he was neurasthenic, psychasthenic, and neurotic. His eyes were weak, his voice was weak, his spirit was weak. He shivered all day with terror at the idea of not sleeping at night. Every evening he quivered with horror at the thought of not waking up next morning. And yet, despite these absorbing, although not entirely delightful, preoccupations, Mr. Sloan was not without an object in life. In fact, he had two objects in life, the happiness of his daughter, Lucille, and the study of crime and criminals. 
The latter interest had brought Hastings to the Sloan country home in Virginia. Judge Wilton, an old friend of the wrecked and wealthy Mr. Sloan, had met the detective on the street in Washington and urged, "'Go down to Sloanhurst and spend Saturday night. I'll be there when you arrive. Sloan's got his mind set on seeing you, and you won't regret it. His library on criminology will be a revelation, even to you.' And Hastings, largely because he shrank from seeming ungracious, had accepted Mr. Sloan's subsequent invitation. Climbing now into the old-fashioned four-poster bed, he thought again of his conversation spree and longed for self-justification. He sat up, sheetless, reflecting, "'As a weekender, I'm a fine old chatterbox. But young Webster got me. What did he say? The cleverer the criminal, the easier to run him down?' the thug acting on the spur of the moment with a blow in the dark and a getaway through the night leaves no trace behind him your smart criminal always overreaches himself a pretty theory but wild anyway it made me forget myself i talked my old fool head off he felt himself blush wish i'd let wilton do the disproving he was anxious enough a mental picture of Sloane consoled him once more. Silk socks and gingham gumption, he thought. But he's honest in his talk about being interested in crime. The man loves crime. Good thing he's got plenty of money. He fell asleep in a kind of ruminative growl. Made a fool of myself, babbling about what I remembered, what I thought. I'll go back to Washington in the morning. Judge Wilton's unsteady voice, supplemented by a rattling of the doorknob, roused him. He had thrust one foot out of bed when Wilton came into the room. "'Quick! Come on, man!' the judge instructed, and hurried into the hall. "'What's wrong?' Hastings demanded, reaching for his spectacles. Wilton, on his way down the stairs, flung back, "'A woman hurt! Outside!' From the hall below came Mr. Sloane's high-pitched, complaining tones. "'Unfathomable angels! What do you say? Who?' Drawing on shoes and trousers, the detective overtook his host on the front veranda and followed him down the steps and around the northeast corner of the house. He noticed that Sloane carried in one hand an electric torch and in the other a bottle of smelling salts. It was no longer raining. Rounding the corner, they saw, scarcely fifteen yards from the bay window of the ballroom, the upturned face of a woman who lay prostrate on the lawn. Lights had been turned on in the house, making a glow which cut through the starless night. The woman did not move. Judge Wilton was in the act of kneeling beside her. "'Hold on!' Hastings called out. "'Don't disturb her if she's dead.' "'She is dead,' said Wilton. "'Who is she?' The detective, trying to find signs of life, put his hand over her heart. "'I don't know,' Wilton answered the question. "'Do you, Sloane?' "'Of course I don't.' 
Hastings said afterwards that Sloane's reply expressed astonished resentment that he should be suspected of knowing anybody vulgar enough to be murdered on his lawn. The detective drew back his hand. His fingers were dark with blood. At that moment, Byrne Webster, Lucille Sloane's fiancé, came from the rear of the house, announcing breathlessly, "'No phone connection! This time of night, Judge. It's past midnight. I sent chauffeur, Lally, for the sheriff.' Hastings stood up, his first cursory examination concluded. "'No doubt about it,' he said. "'She's dead. Bring a blanket, somebody.' Mr. Sloane's nerves had the best of him by this time. He trembled like a man with a chill, rattling the bottle of smelling salts against the metal end of his electric torch. He had on slippers and a light dressing gown over his pajamas. Wilton was fully dressed, young Webster collarless but wearing a black, lightweight lounging jacket. Hastings was struck with the different degrees of their dress or undress. "'Who found her?' he asked, looking at Webster. "'Judge Wilton and I,' said Webster, so short of breath that his chest heaved. "'How long ago?' Wilton answered that. "'A few minutes, hardly five minutes. I ran in to call you and Sloane.' "'And Mr... you, Mr. Webster?' "'The judge told me to... to get the sheriff.' by telephone. Hastings knelt again over the woman's body. Here, Mr. Sloane, he ordered, hold that torch closer, will you? Mr. Sloane found compliance impossible. He could not steady his hand sufficiently. Hold that torch, Judge, Hastings prompted. It's knocked me out completely, Sloane said, surrendering the torch to Wilton. Webster, the pallor still in his face, a look of horror in his eyes, stood on the side of the body opposite the detective. At brief intervals he raised first one foot, then the other, clear of the ground, and set it down again. He was unconscious of making any movement at all. Hastings, thoroughly absorbed in the work before him, went about it swiftly, with now and then brief, murmured comment on what he did and saw. Although his ample nightshirt, stuffed into his equally baggy trousers, contributed nothing but comicality to his appearance, the others submitted without question to his domination. There was about him suddenly an atmosphere of power that impressed even the little group of awestruck servants who stood a few feet away. Stabbed! he said, after he had run his hands over the woman's figure. Died instantly. Must have. Got her heart. Young. Not over twenty-five, would you say? Not dead long. Anybody call a doctor? I told Lally to stop by Dr. Garnet's house and send him at once, Webster said, his voice low and broken. He's the coroner, too. Hastings continued his examination. The brief pause that ensued was broken by a woman's voice. "'Pauline! Pauline!' The call came from one of the upstairs windows. Hearing it, a woman in the servant group hurried into the house. 
Webster groaned, My God! Frantic fiends! It gets worse and worse, Sloane objected shrilly. My nerves! And Lucille's annoyed, shocked. He held the smelling bottle to his nose, breathing deeply. Here, take this, Hastings directed, and put up his hand abruptly. Sloane had so gone to pieces that the movement frightened him. He stepped back in such obvious terror that the hoarse guffaw of involuntary ridicule escaped one of the servants. The detective, finding that his kneeling posture made it difficult to put his handkerchief back into his trousers pocket, had thrust it toward Sloane. That gentleman, having so suddenly removed himself out of reach, Hastings stuck the handkerchief into Judge Wilton's coat pocket. Arthur Sloane, the detective said later, never forgave him that unexpected wave of the handkerchief and the servant's ridiculing laugh. Hastings looked up at Wilton. Did you find any weapon? I didn't look. Didn't take time. Neither did I, young Webster added. Hastings, disregarding the wet grass, was on his hands and knees, searching. He accomplished a complete circuit of the body, his round-shouldered, stooping figure making grotesque, elephantine shadows under the light of the torch as he moved about slowly, not trusting his eyes, but feeling with his hands every inch of the smallest half-lit spaces. Nobody else took part in the search. Having accepted his leadership from the outset, they seemed to take it for granted that he needed no help. Mentally benumbed by the horror of the tragedy, they stood there in the quiet summer night, barren of ideas. They were like children waiting to be instructed. Hastings stood erect, pulling and hauling at his trousers. "'Can't find a knife or anything,' he said. "'Glad I can't.' Hope he took it with him. Why? asked Sloane through chattering teeth. May help us to find him. May be a clue in the end. He was silent a moment, squinting under the rims of his spectacles, looking down at the figure of the dead woman. He had already covered the face with the hat she had worn, a black straw sailor but neither he nor the others found it easy to forget the peculiar and forbidding expression the features wore, even in death. It was partly fear, partly defiance, as if her last conscious thought had been a flitting look into the future, an exulting recognition of the certain consequences of the blow that had struck her down. Put into words, it might have been, "'You've murdered me,' but you'll pay for it, terribly. A servant handed Hastings the blanket he had ordered. He looked toward the sky. I don't think it'll rain any more, he said, and it's best to leave things as they are until the coroner arrives. He'll be here soon? Should get here in half an hour or so, Judge Wilton informed him. The detective arranged the blanket so that it covered the prone form completely, leaving the hat over the face as he had first placed it. With the exception of the hat, he had disturbed no part of the apparel. Even the folds of the raincoat, 
which fell away from the body and showed the rain-soaked black skirt, he left as he had found them. The white shirt-waist, also partly exposed now, was dry. "'Anybody move her hat before I came out?' he asked. "'You, Judge, or you, Mr. Webster?' They had not touched it, they said. It was on the grass, beside her head, when they discovered the body, and they had left it there. Again he was silent, brows drawn together as he stood over the murdered woman. Finally he raised his head swiftly, and, taking each in turn, searched sharply the countenances of the three men before him. "'Does—didn't anybody here know this woman?' he asked. Burn Webster left his place at the opposite side of the body and came close to Hastings. "'I know who she is,' he said, his voice lower even than before, as if he wished to keep that information from the servants. Hastings' keen scrutiny had in it no intimation of surprise. Waiting for Webster to continue, he was addressed by the shivering Mr. Sloan. "'Mr. Hastings! "'Mr. Hastings, take charge of—of things, will you? "'You know about these things.' "'The detective accepted the suggestion. "'Suppose we get at what we know about, what we all know. "'Let's go inside.' "'He turned to the servants. "'Stay here until you're called. "'See that nothing is disturbed, nothing touched.' "'He led the way into the house. "'Sloan, near collapse, clung to one of Judge Wilton's broad shoulders. It was young Webster who, as the little procession passed the hat-rack in the front hall, caught up a raincoat and threw it over the half-clad Hastings. End of chapter 2 Recording by Roger Moline